This is the Good Things Guy podcast with myself, Brendan DeCute, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. I'm on a mission to change what the world pays attention to. I truly believe that there's good news all around us, and I spend my time hunting down and reporting on the best good news stories from South Africa and the world. In the Good Things Guy podcast, you'll meet these everyday heroes and hear their incredible stories. South Africa's top female off-road enduro racer, Kirsten Lundman, is taking on the ultimate challenge in 2020, the Dakar Rally. Following in the footsteps of some of her illustrious compatriots, like Alfie Cox and Janelle de Villiers, Kirsten will be the first African woman to take to the start line of the Dakar Rally. It's so flippin' exciting. And Kirsten and John from Ryobi have joined us in studio today to talk about her incredible journey, the passion that got her here, and why the hell she's taking on this crazy, crazy crazy race. Welcome to the Good Things Guy jackpot. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's really cool to have you in studio. It's actually almost a year to the date that Joey Evans was in studio with us. And what a guy. Yeah, uh, Joey's been a huge inspiration. And to actually be honest, he's the reason why I've decided to take this on because he got back from Dakar in 2017 and said to me, Kirst, you know, if there's anyone that can do the Dakar, it's you. And uh, he planted the seed and um, now here we are watching it grow. Well, Kirst, where does, where does this come from? So before we get into the Dakar and what that is and how big this adventure is, where does your passion for this sport come from? It started at a young age. Um, I grew up as a as quite a tomboy, and we're growing up around my cousins. My cousin, younger cousin at the time, had a motorbike, and and I'd always just wanted a motorbike. I can't really say where it came from. And and at the age of eight, my father he said to me, you know, I said, Dad, can I please get a motorbike? And he's like, No, because obviously coming from the dangers of the sport. And I said, Please, please, I really want a motorbike. He's like, Well, if you make the provincial swimming team, because I was already swimming provincially at at that age. Well, not yet, but he said if you make the heart team provincial team, I'll buy you a motorbike. And um, need to say I made the provincial team and then it started I got my first little peewee 80 at the age of eight and ever since then it's just like you know they say the bug bites and that's it the perception that that I think most of the world might have is that motorsport is a very male-dominated sport. It's a, it's a profession that a lot of guys get into. Is that true? Are there a lot of females that you're competing against? Um, not really. Well, from the background that I come from, hard enduro, it's still growing. It's developing. I mean, there's there's some of the best females in the world that are taking on motocross and like Lias Sons at the Dakar Rally. But here in South Africa, from when I started racing at the age of 14, I mean, I was the only one doing it. And um, I've only ever known racing against guys and that's why I think I see myself as a fellow competitor with the guys um, I don't differentiate myself between uh, you know I know I'm a female but I don't see myself as any difference against them on the start line and I think that's why I am where I am today because I've, I've done things differently and I'm, I'm grateful it's been that way but the sport is definitely it's growing and I, I think in the next 10 years time the women are going to be on the same page as the men. Well, the reality is, is what you're doing right now is making a difference to people that are watching your journey. And I've seen articles and I've seen videos of you being interviewed. And if I'm seeing them, then young girls that have the same dream as you would be seeing them too. And that's, are you an inspiration? Oh, I hope so. Because um, to look up to someone, and like I have over the years, I've looked up to Lia's sons. And to, to see her do so well in something, it gives me hope that I can do well in something. Hence why I'm taking on the Dakar Rally. Well, we've just got John from Ryobi here. And John, um, you're one of the main sponsors. So if I have to ask, what made you uh, decide to sponsor Kirst? We love Kirsten's passion, um, her dedication to what she does. And it's synonymous with our brand. So we feel it's like a natural fit. And we also want to put something positive back into the country for right now. Everything's negative and South Africa is a great place. Africa is a great place. 
it's really got such a huge potential. And I think, again, that is why it's so natural to partner with somebody like Kirsten. Was there a strategic approach or a thought process behind sponsoring a female specifically? Um, in, in recent years, we've seen the sponsorship behind Casta Semenya with Nike. Our netball team is doing unbelievable things. Banyana Banyana are maybe performing better than our, our own male soccer team. <laughs> so was there a strategy behind that? To be honest, no. But it's something that um, we feel passionate about and we like the way Kirsten goes about doing her job and it helps our brand. We also distribute Ryobi right throughout Africa and with the Dakar being, say, close to Africa in Saudi this year, it helps us to get our brand perhaps a little bit more noticed in other African countries. I think what's exciting is you're helping an athlete elevate herself. And me being a small business, I can see when corporates jump in and they, they want to sponsor and they want to help. It just helps us do what we're already good at, uh, which is always we can always be thankful for. Kirst, motorsport, is it dangerous? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but as so is crossing the street. <laughs> it's my job. It's something I've done my whole life. And I've had broken plenty bones and I've had big accidents. But... Um, it's my life. I don't know anything different. So for me to get back on the motorbike after an accident is just like getting up and walking again. It's, it's, it's what I love. And if I'm not on my motorbike, I'm not happy. You speak about the big accident, and, and I know you've been interviewed about it before. Mm. For our listeners, what is the biggest accident that you've had? Um, so in 2013, racing off-roads. It's a race called uh, the Desert 1000. It's in Botswana, and we were racing just outside of Gaborone. Um, it's a two-day event, and it's combined cars, quads, and motorbikes. It's quite a big event in Botswana. One day you do 500 kilometers, another day you do 500 kilometers, hence why it's called the Desert 1000. And you're racing through, um, you know, thorn trees, quite a sandy, it was quite a sandy track. And um, first day went well, second day I was riding behind another another rider, and I was trying to get past that rider. And um, from the cars riding the, the route the day before, there was like a double groove formed in the track. And the other rider I was trying to pass was in the left-hand lane, and I was in the right hand lane and as racing goes you want to get past the rider so I came in quite hot to make the pass and there was like an S-bend coming up around some trees and thinking that they were in the inside line they were going to hold the inside line on the left and I would pass him on the right last minute that rider hopped slammed on brakes hopped into the right hand lane and my front wheel overtook their back wheel and they were on the left side of me and when you grab the front brakes of a motorbike, motorbike and especially in like a dome shape rut and in sand my front wheel like like washed and it washed to, couldn't go to the left because the, their wheel was there. So it washed to the right. And um, there was a tree stump about waist height. And I went straight into it with my, impacted it straight with my, straight with my stomach. And nothing was hanging out my body, but I was excruciatingly, I was in a lot of pain. And um, we lay there for, for quite a while before the medics eventually got well, to it, me. It, it, uh, even though it's a race and, and they have medics yes. on hand, you're literally in the middle of nowhere, right? In the middle of nowhere. You've got trees around you. So for anyone to find us was quite hard. And to pinpoint exactly where I was, was difficult. So the rider stopped behind me. A guy stopped and he was really helpful. He stayed with me the whole time. And then what you do is you tell the rider that stops, listen, even at the next Marshall Point, there was an accident. And so they eventually, we heard like the car trying to find us. It took them an hour and a half before they got to me. And at the time, I didn't think anything was on me. I just knew I was in a lot of pain. And the guy who stopped me was really good. So he kept me away because all I wanted to do was sleep. And I started to kind of go into shock. Um, the medics got to me. They did like a check on me. Um, nothing physically was wrong. So they just assumed soft tissue damage. And then I got back to the pits after quite a while. And there had actually been quite a few accidents that day. So I was kind of pit. I wasn't seen as a 
as a criti- critical. critical and there were worse guys other riders were in worse condition than I was and um eventually got to the Gaborone private I got seen to after a while and they couldn't pick up anything I couldn't pick up anything after x-ray sonar ct scans which actually was a blessing in disguise and then I was put onto a lot of morphine and then thank goodness for my uh, boss from KTM South Africa Francisca she knew Dr. Hein van der Walt at the Unitas hotel new hotel Unitas Hospital in Pretoria. And, like a um, hotel, you stay over as well. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> food's good. <laughs> so she messaged him and said, listen, one of my riders have had an accident. He said, just send me your blood test results. And because him being a doctor, he knew exactly what I'd done from my blood test results. And he's like, you need to get cursed now straight away. So again, thank goodness for private medical aid. Um, Discovery flew in, um, or they sent up medics because they also had to justify if it was worth flying me out, you know, because everything adds up and it's a lot of money. So eventually I was flown out the next day, which would have been a f- Saturday at half past one. And I remember the day before I had accidents at half past nine. So it's already been a long time. Yeah. Um, got back to Unitas um, Hospital after a few hiccups along the way. Now it had already been like half past two, three o'clock. I got there. My doctor who operated on me, Dr. Valkovich, he was hysterical because he had no and they knew what was wrong with me so actually i had um ruptured my pancreas off my small intestine and i didn't know of it at the time and he had known and so he was he's like kirsten should have been operated on really long ago this has taken too long um because when when that's ruptured and i'm not a doctor mm. but you've got your your acidic sort of the the stuff that breaks down the food that's spilling into your well your small intestine is your carries all your waste so now I had all of that in my stomach and by the time I had eventually been operated on this 36 hours eight hours is critical and one in four people survive what I had so you know eight Good hours being critical 36 hours anyway so I got operated on I woke up 11 days two weeks later and um, I was put into a um, induced coma I was put onto life support I mean I was on so much morphine just to control the pain that it stopped my heart so I was put onto life support I was put into induced coma because the best time for your body to rest is when you're you're asleep and um, the whole time for me obviously I don't remember a thing from being on the time I was put onto the operating table waking up two weeks later my parents and family went through that emotional roller coaster of everything being okay and then you know with the infection rate being so high with obviously it's the unknown then everything going septic and um you know then there was a chance of of my kidneys failure but that didn't failing but that didn't happen but it was an emotional roller coaster but the doctor when i saw him once i had recovered how he said when he looked at me when i with my last checkup with him he said Kirsten, how you are alive i have no idea clinically you should have been dead and he's you know he's he's age and and fitness and obviously i certainly believe someone upstairs was looking out for me and it was certainly wasn't my time i had to come back on this earth to do a hell of a lot more well you are i mean you are we're, we're now planning dakar yeah. kirsten how do you get back on the how do you get, you said get back on the proverbial horse how do you yeah. get back on the bike after you've had this crazy tragic accident that you nearly lost your life I mean, what is that like getting back on the bike? I strongly believe from the time when well, my mom told me, I mean, I wasn't 100%, 100% aware when I eventually woke up when I was in ICU. She's, my mom said to me, I had already started asking about the roof of Africa. <laughs> you know, I want to get better. I want to get strong and I want to start riding again. And I think that's what motivated me to to get better, to get healthy again. And just so I can start, start riding again, I never once had in my mind I wasn't going to ride again. So for me to be able to get strong enough, put on a bit more weight and to, to build up all my muscle and strength again was also that I could get back on the motorbike. So I never, that's all I, that was my motivation. And as it is with any injury, the moment we are sidelined, I can't wait to get better, healthy. And so I can get back on my motorbike. 
You speak about muscle fitness and being healthy, and that's what helped you get through. Is it quite strenuous being on a motorbike? I mean, you, I, I can imagine. Like, I've, I can imagine being on a bike for 500 k's. But do you have to be quite fit? Oh, certainly. So if I can explain it to you, our bikes, so my enduro bike weighs between 100 and 115 kgs. And then with all our kit that we're carrying on us, um, you know, you're adding on about 10 to 15 kgs of kit on top of you, your weight. Um, so now you're riding over all natural uh, rivers, mountains, and you're picking up your bike the whole time. Yes, the bike's generating the power, but you're moving and maneuvering it. So it is exceptionally physically demanding. And now for Dakar, my bike weighs 180 kilos. You're carrying 37 liters of fuel, and we're going to be riding between eight to 900 kilometers a day <laughs> and in sand and over all those obstacles. So, yes, in the last, since I decided I was doing the Dakar, I've, I've had to really change my, change my training regime get a lot stronger because i'm going to be riding a much bigger motorbike but yeah it's actually proven to be one of the most physically demanding sports in the world so i'll take my hat off to you i did a cross-country off-road vehicle in a car like i was i was the uh <laughs> what do you call them the mapper the, oh, the navigator navigator yes. thank you you can navigator. see i'm terrible at sports <laughs> um but i was the navigator and I, I it took me weeks to learn how to use the book i had to be yes. on the book um and it, that was only 500 k's and when we got out of that i slept for about four days because i was <laughs> stuffed it's just it's a lot of work yeah so hats off to you dakar where's it happening this year saudi arabia 2020 so next, 20, year. Um, next year 2020 yes. saudi arabia and you're saying 900 kilometers a day how many days 12 days. So the average, so they gave us our distances. We're doing 10,000 kilometers over 12 days with one race day in between. I'm a little bit speechless. That's mad. It is. It's crazy. It's but absolute that's madness. How many competitors take part? Yeah. So you've got all different discipline, trucks, side-by-sides, quads, cars, and motorbikes. And they normally go between 400 to 500 entrants across the board. Okay, and and then you're not doing it by yourself because you've got a team, right? Yes. There's someone that follows you? No, not necessarily. So we have a start point. So your team will look after you at the end of the day and before you start. So the rules of the Dakar is from the time you start in the morning at your start time till the time you finish, you are not, not allowed to have any support. So how you get from the start point being A to the finish point being B of the day, you are they fend for yourself? You can live off the land. By that, what they mean is if you break something and you happen to drive past a bike store and you need something, that's living off the land. Or you can get stuff from fellow competitors. But if you message your crew and say, hey, buds, come out, I've, I've broken something, you'll get disqualified. Okay. So at the end of the day, when you come in, your service crew then fix the bike. You know, you can do what you want. But, you know, they, they do have their rules um, in the fine print. You know, you're only allowed one engine change. And with an engine change becomes an, uh, a time penalty. And so it goes on. So there are very strict rules with the Dakar. And the whole idea is to start and finish the race on the bike that you started on. You know? John, will you guys be giving her tools to take with on this bike? <laughs> 30 kilograms of tools? For sure. She's got to wash her bike every day with her IB high pressure cleaner. She's got to fix it with all the IB tools that we've given her. Yeah, we'll just have to watch your weight, your weight <laughs> control on the on the bikes. It sounds quite epic, and I've watched Dakar from the sidelines before. Um, like I said, I've interviewed Joey, um, which was it's crazy to think of what he's gonna go, what he's been through, and what you're gonna go through. It's flipping exciting. You said that you picked up your training because the weight is different. How are you getting ready for this? 
Well, um, are you riding every day? Are you literally climbing on the bike and getting ready to go? Oh, I don't ride every day. I ride um, between a good riding weeks four times on the bike, a bad riding weeks once, twice on the bike, you know, depending on, on my health and, and time and traveling and racing. Uh, we've got quite a busy schedule throughout the year. But, um, you know, the biggest thing for me was to ride the bike that I'm going to be riding at Dakar. And we ride a KTM 450 Rally Replica. And the bikes are very hard to come by. And Ryobi were... You know, having them on board was a huge help because they actually bought me a rally replica, which has been amazing because the bikes, they're not cheap. And to a lot of, what a lot of the guys do is they convert a normal 450 Enduro bike and they put on a long range tank, but it's still, that bike doesn't even come near to the weight, nor does the bike handle the same. So to be able to train on the bike that I'm going to race on has made the world of difference. And um, that for me is, has been the best thing I've been able to do. And then obviously being able to go to train in places that are going to mimic what you're going to be in riding as similar as you can to what you're riding in Saudi Arabia, like, you know, going to the dunes in Namibia, like those sort of things is, it's important. Is, I mean, there, is there anything close like in Johannesburg? No, nothing. Nothing, what, nothing compares. Maraisburg mind dumps. <laughs> <laughs> nothing compares. No, nothing. It's going to be extreme and, and I, you know, we're all excited to support you. Um, the first African female that will be on that starting grid. I think you're going to inspire a lot of people through that journey. If people want to follow you on this journey how where do they go what do they do so they can follow me through the ryobi africa facebook page um my story's been broadcasted videos all through that i've also got my own personal pages instagram um curse landman uh, facebook as well curse landman and it's all been streamed throughout that um you can follow me on that i do all the updates myself and then of course um, ryobi are putting out um, a lot of stuff through their facebook page Amazing. One last thing. I'm all about the good things, as you know, good things guy. But uh, we love when people that are getting a platform and, and are doing these great things are also giving back and doing good at the same time. And apparently you've got a, a massive affinity to animals. So besides motorbikes and my family, actually probably before that are animals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's, most animal people are like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, everything else is second. Yes. So my, I've got a, I rescued a little, um, a little terrier cross three years ago from Fora. And her name's Sammy. And um, I've always had a passion for animals, but this dog has just stolen my heart and my life. So I, you know, as coming onto this Dakar thing, I was like, huh, I've always wanted to be able to give back, but I've never been able to have the platform. And, you know, with the following that this has created and the hype that it's created, I thought, Philip, let's do something good with it. And so what I've done is I've created a, um, a NPO. It's called Sam. I named it after my dog. I played around with the words and I came up with Saving Animals Movement. Wow. Yeah. Clever. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so what I'm doing is... Um, um, when I go to races around the country, I, I ask for food guys who are entering the race to bring to bring food along, animal food, cats, dog food, even blankets. And then what I do is um, I go and drop off the food at at shelters that smaller shelters that don't. They're always asking for food and and stuff. And then obviously we we've got some raffle tickets running, you know, from sponsors that I've given kits and stuff that we we run in. And 50% of all the proceeds that I do fundraise will go towards the Saving Animals Movement, which will be used to sterilise dogs and cats in these villages and then you know the ones that aren't don't have homes we'll look for homes for them you know it's um it's just not going to change the world but it's it's something like it's how i got my dog someone took sammy in and if if sammy's changed my life and they can do that for someone else it's dogs are the best things in the whole wide world animals are and they bring so much happiness into our lives and you know they don't have someone looking out for them but being able to do something small like this and to be able to give back to those that are helpless it's a huge thing and it's something that i want to get bigger and make it grow and just create awareness I've got a big fat smile on my face. Uh, <laughs> many years ago, 
when whatever happened that, that gave me the opportunity to grow good things guy, um, my mantra was change one thing, change everything. And that's, uh, I've stuck by that, that we all have the power to yeah. make the smallest difference. And that difference can turn into something a lot bigger. So we got Dakar, we got racing, we got animals, um, and it can all be found on the Facebook pages that we'll put in the link below this. Thank you for listening to the Good Things Guy jackpot. Keep doing all the good things, subscribing, following us. That's it. Wishing you only good things. And for more good things, visit www.goodthingsguy.com. Okay? Love you. Bye.